Well, Happy New Year. Not here yet, but it will be soon. <laughs> Can you believe it? 2020. Seems hard to believe. We're going to do a little, a short series actually here on embracing the new year called 2020. And um, we want to look at a biblical perspective, a biblical vision for the new year, for embracing the new year. And so um, this morning as you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and after we finish this series, we'll get back into our studies in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For those of you who are reading ahead, you can, we'll probably hit that in February, I imagine. But this morning we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3, and kind of the idea of this series is to, to help you gain some vision for the new year. Um, this isn't necessarily a, a church statement on vision or anything like that. It's more of a, a personal statement for your spiritual growth. And I pray that as we embrace the year 2020, that we are focused more on Christ and less on ourselves, that we're making him the center of our lives and our church. And uh, we're going to look at some passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament as we go through this little series. But today, on the first a message here. I want to talk about climbing out of the spiritual slump. <laughs> you ever been in a spiritual slump, a spiritual ditch? Uh, even as Christians, we get there. And uh, more often than not, we find ourselves waking up and praying prayers that we don't believe will ever be answered and reading passages that sometimes we question. And we begin to look at our own faith and say, boy, is this stuff real? Is this living? And, you know, 60% of people make, uh, who make New Year's resolutions um, probably don't keep them, all right? And it's, uh, it's not a bad thing to make a resolution. Some people think it's a bad thing. It's not. It's, you know, it's an opportunity for people to seek some self-improvement in their life, maybe in their health, in their finances, in their relationships, whatever, even career changes. Um, one article pointed out the top 10 New Year's resolutions of, for 20, 2020 um, that people have, are considering making. Uh, and it is a survey of 20, or 2,000 people, excuse me, 2,000 people. The first one was what? You can probably guess it, right? Health, right? Diet. Diet or eat healthier. 71% of the people pick that. Um, uh, exercise more, 65%. Lose weight, 54%. You can see them going down. Save more and spend less, 32%. Learn a new skill or hobby, 26%. Quit smoking, 21%. Um, read more, 17%. Find another job, 16%. Drink less alcohol, 15%. Spend more time with family and friends, 13%. It's kind of sad that that's at the bottom of the list there. And these are all changes and stuff that people want to make as they embrace the new year, as December and the holiday season begins to wind down. Um, there's something about having an actual date on the calendar that motivates us as individuals and as Christians even to improve our lives. There's nothing wrong with that. And as you consider all those different areas that we just mentioned, I want to ask the question, where is God in that picture? Where is God? Hopefully, in your own life, he's front and center. 
Um, the new year is a great opportunity to either uh, commit your life to Christ if you've never done that or uh, continue in following him and committing yourself to following Christ daily and growing in your relationship with him. And that should really be our number one priority as believers. It should be setting for yourself this year a commitment to follow Christ in every, every area of your life, every area of your life. When it comes to following Jesus, the first thing we need to remember is simply that it isn't our, our life, is it? It's not our life. When we committed our lives to Christ, we gave up our lives and we decided to follow him. And the moment we were saved by God, it stopped being about us and it started, the focus started being about him, or at least it should be. And this is the point that Paul is making in chapter uh, Two before we get to chapter 3, our text. But in chapter 2, he's, he's mentioning several things here in chapter 2. He says in verses is 1 and 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, followed by the, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice he says that we were dead and that we were in our trespasses. Well, that was our status before we came to Christ as believers. That's your status now if you're not a Christian. You're dead in your sins. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't have a life. So many times we think we have to give up so many things to follow Christ. Oh, I have to give up my life. Really, you don't have a life. The Bible says that you're dead. Your life is all about yourself. That's no life to have. It may have seemed like we were alive, but that was basically a life of smoke and mirrors. It wasn't reality, hiding the fact that we were more than walking dead men and women. And what Paul is saying here, in our natural state, outside of Christ Jesus, outside of that relationship with him, if we can do the wrong thing, you better believe that we're going to do it. We just have a, a natural draw. You know, you look at children. They just have a natural tendency to do bad things. You don't have to train them to do bad things. We try to train them to do right things, but they still do bad things. That's just the way it is. And even when we don't intend to do the wrong thing, guess what? We do it anyway because that sin is deeply ingrained within our lives. Everything we speak, everything we do, all of our actions, every thought, every motive, that's a the reflections of someone who, no matter how intellectual you may be, no matter how self-aware you may be, you're spiritually dead if you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. More than that, apart from Christ, it says we're dead, not just dead, but we're dead in our transgressions and our sins. There's kind of a, a duality here, complementary ways in which we are dead, he says, to trespass is to enter into a place you ought not to go. Growing up back in Pennsylvania, we had our property posted. It said, no trespassing. And we had posts up on the trees all around our property. So you can veer off the path and you can trespass. It doesn't have to be something that's intentional. I heard of a story of a man who decided to visit a friend in D.C., and he thought, well, I'm going to take you out for dinner. And uh, so they got in the car. It was dark. He wasn't familiar with the city. He missed the turn for the restaurant. Instead, he ended up having to turn around in this massive parking lot. 
And immediately his passenger became very irritated, very upset. The friend he was taking out to dinner because he lived there. And he said, you know what, you can't stop here. He was getting out his map to look where he was going. He goes, you have to go right now. This is not a good place to be. Why? What's the big deal? He goes, this is the Pentagon. And he goes, immediately, he saw these black vans closing in on their vehicle. And they had to get out of there. It wasn't intentional that they showed up. There was a mistake. See, the trespassing doesn't have to be intentional. But nonetheless, they were in a place they ought not to be. That's what sin is. Sin is just that. It's sin. It can be intentional or unintentional. Our life before the saving intervention of Christ, the Bible says, is one of death. Spiritual death. But look at what it says in verse 4 of chapter 2. It says, but God. But God. Right there we know that there's a great turn in events that takes place. God in his great mercy and his great grace and his, and his goodness is not going to leave us in that horrible state of deadness. Even though we deserve his wrath, what does God do? God is going to do something to fix the situation. He's going to change things. It's an amazing thought when you think about it, but God. What did he do? Well, simply, God saved us. God saved us. That is the solution to the problem of every human heart. The salvation of God is the answer to the question. The point that God has saved us, that God did a work of deliverance in us, it's made two times there in those few verses, in verses 5 and verse 8. We're clearly told that by grace, by grace, God's unmerited favor, we've been saved. It's a gift he gives us, a gift that we don't deserve. God saved us by his grace. But not just grace, as it says there in verse 8. It's a gift of God. It is the gift of God. See, it's not our faith that saves us. Do you know that? A lot of people have faith. But they have faith in the wrong thing. (laughs) You can have faith in a lot of different things. You can have faith in a lot of different false gods, for that matter. See, it's not our faith that saves us, beloved. It's what? The object of our faith. What are you trusting in? Kevin DeYoung used a good illustration regarding this. He speaks of walking out on the frozen Lake Michigan in the wintertime. And he said that initial step onto that frozen lake is an act of faith. Clearly, it's an act of faith. But it's not his faith that keeps him from falling into the freezing water. What is it? It's the thickness of the ice. He can have all the faith in the world. I took a group of kids up to Hume Lake as a youth pastor one time, and we walked all the way down to the end of the lake, and coming back, you know, we're trudging through like three feet of snow. And I said, hey, you know what? The lake's right there. Let's walk on the edge of the lake. It's all snow's blown off it. So we're tooling along the edge of the lake, and there's signs, you know, do not walk on the lake. Yeah, whatever. It's been cold enough. Well, guess what? One of the kids fell in. Luckily, it was only a couple feet deep. Poor girl. By the time she got back to the lodge, she was walking like this because her, her jeans were frozen, stiff. Stupid thing for me to do. But I thought, ah, not a big deal. See, it's not our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. 
It's the confidence that we have in the work of Christ. And that's the gift that Paul's talking about here. There's nothing that we do that makes us right with God. It's all the work of God. It has to be for him to receive all the glory. And when we talk about having 2020 vision in the year 2020, we need to start with the looking directly into the mirror. Who do you see when you see yourself in the mirror? Do you see someone who is dead in their sins? Someone who is still an enemy of God by their lifestyle? Someone upon whom the very real wrath of God is hanging over? Maybe you see someone who God has been merciful to, that God has saved. Maybe you see someone that God has brought back to life from the dead. See, when we consider this coming new year and the right orientation of our life, see, if we don't realize the very basic fact that there's only one reason we have a life to live, it's because of God's rich and wonderful grace. If you don't realize that, you're not going to be able to order your life in a spiritual way around Christ at all. What will happen is a lot of self-help, a lot of failed attempts at good works, maybe with the right motivation, but turns into the wrong motivation. And all of our efforts go right down the drain. Well, that's what he tells us in chapter 2. But look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Verses 14 through 21 be our text this morning. He says, Paul says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from, the, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power of God within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forevermore. Amen. Today I want to talk about, first of all, getting out of this spiritual slump sometimes we find ourselves in. And that's really what Paul was praying. He was saying, hey, don't let them fall into a spiritual ditch. Um, Sometimes people use the the word doldrums, you know, you're down in the doldrums. What does that mean? It refers to a part of the ocean, I thought this was kind of interesting, a part of the ocean near the equator where for just some reason the winds are very calm. There's no wind there. And if you're a sailing vessel with no motor and you get into these doldrums, as they call it, you're not going to go anywhere. You're just going to sit there because there's no wind to push the sail. If you look up the word, Webster defines it this way, a spell of listlessness or despondency, blues, a state of inactivity or stagnation or slump. Sometimes we end up there spiritually. I guess that some of you may have drifted into spiritual doldrums or the spiritual slump 
a spiritual ditch. I mean, you're not doubting your faith. You're not denying Christ. You're not denying the faith. You're not thinking about leaving the faith and becoming an atheist. But you know what? On the other hand, you're not going anywhere spiritually either. You're spiritually stagnant. Your Christian life has become routine. It's become boring. See, if this describes you in any way, and I'm sure it describes many of us at different times in our lives, but maybe there's some here this morning that are feeling that way right now. I hope this message will motivate you to get out of the doldrums, get out of the spiritual slump, and make this new year something of spiritually significant advances in your life. This is really a a prayer that Paul prays. Um, It's kind of going all out. It's not a timid prayer by any means, as as we just read it. You might call it a Hail Mary pass prayer. You know, the Hail Mary is when they desperately need a touchdown and the quarterback goes back and just throws it. And, wow, just hoping and praying someone catches it. See, Paul's prayer is like that, but it's even greater. He prays in verse 19 that these believers in Ephesus will be filled up, listen to this, with all the fullness of God. And then, if that's not enough, he prays him beyond the limits. He prays in verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Do you ever stop and think that God's power has no limits? It's limitless? So here's the new year's goal to help move you out of your spiritual slump, your spiritual ditch, your spiritual doldrums. Take this prayer and commit it to memory. Take this prayer and apply it to others in your life. James 4.2 says that we don't often have because what? We don't ask. Well, Paul's asking in a magnificent way here. Don't be guilty of not asking God to do this year that which is humanly impossible. That's what God specializes in. Remember what the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 37? Don't fear, hey, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. So seven quick things here. First of all, Pray this prayer often for yourself, for your family members, and for our church this year. Literally pray. Put put people's names in there and pray that prayer for them. Do as Paul did. Really hide this message in his heart. You can tell, you can see the passion that he's, he's writing with here. Extend the prayers to our missionaries, to lost people that you want to know to come to Christ. A couple things about this prayer. Pray more for spiritual growth than for physical or material needs. So many times that's what we end up doing, don't we? We end up praying for our physical needs or our material needs. If somebody gets sick, oh, we pray for them. See, Paul wrote this letter from where? From prison. I mean, prisons in that day, they didn't have a TV and, you know, they didn't get three square meals a day. They didn't have leisure time. Probably all Paul owned were the clothes on his back. Rags, no less. And at this age, he was getting up in years. And with all the physical abuse that his body had suffered, the beatings and everything, 
He had lots of aches and pains. I mean, if you found yourself in prison with just the clothes on your back and you were beaten and bruised and sore in this cold, dreary cell, how would you be praying in those circumstances? Lord, get me out of this prison. <laughs> Come on, provide the needs to fund the, the, the funds I need to pay these guards off so I can get out of here or to get some food or some clothes. I'm cold. I'm sick. Heal my aging, aching body, Lord. But you know what? Paul didn't pray any of those things. When he finally does ask for prayer for himself, all the way in chapter 6, in the book, in verses 19 and 20, here's what Paul prays for. He says, and also for me, all the way at the end of the book, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What's he asked for? He doesn't ask for food. He doesn't ask for blankets. He asks for boldness in sharing Christ. But he begins here for this reason, and that's why I read part of chapter 2 as an introduction, because it really goes back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. For this reason, what reason, Paul? Well, you've got to go back and read those two chapters. Paul is saying, because God has saved you by his sovereign grace, he's made you as the Jews and Gentiles into one new man, and he's brought them all together in the church, and because you're being built up together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, therefore I pray. What he prays is that God would make real in their experience, in their personal lives, what is true of them, what, positionally. In Christ. A lot of times believers get down in that spiritual slump. They get in the doldrums because they don't understand who they are in Christ. And so what does Paul do in Ephesians? The first three chapters tells us who we are in Christ. It's all theology. And then in chapter 4, 5, and 6, what's he do? Because I just told you who you are in Christ, now, practically, this is how it fleshes out in your life. So many times we skip over the first three chapters and we just want to get to the practical. Just tell me what i got to do. But if you don't understand who you are in Christ, you're going to have a hard time doing what God expects you to do in Christ. So he prays for them for more spiritual growth than their physical or their material needs. That's really a pattern that the Lord laid down in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Spiritual growth is paramount. So pray more for spiritual growth than your physical material needs. Secondly, pray in humble submission to and dependence on the Father. See, Paul directs his prayer to the Father. Notice that. He could have said, I pray, but instead he says, I bow my knees before the Father. He's not talking about a position for prayer here. You can, prayer, you can pray however you want. You pray standing on your head. My sister Swellen said that she prayed the prayer of salvation sitting on the toilet one day. Whatever works. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter. You, you can pray in any position. It doesn't matter. But here he's showing a position of humility. He's talking about what? An attitude that's needed for prayer. And that's what prayer is, by the way. Prayer is an attitude. It's an attitude of dependence upon God 24-7. So he says, I bow my knees before the Father. 
Kneeling revealed reverence, submission, humility, adoration before God. The Greek word there translated before means toured or face-to-face with. And along with the word father, it implies the intimacy of a child coming before his loving father who warmly welcomes him. In that culture, father was not only a term of intimacy, but it was also a term of authority, something that we don't have today, unfortunately, in our society with so many fathers. See, the the act of naming implied the authority of the one giving the name. And while we're invited to come to God as our loving father who delights in his children, we should also do so with what? With reverence, with submission to his sovereign authority. You know, God is not our good buddy in the sky. He's not the big man upstairs. We've got to knock that off. We have to be more reverent toward God. He is the almighty, holy God who created everything around us. And even the angels cover their faces in reverence before him. See, prayer is the admission that we are totally and utterly dependent upon God. We can't do life on our own. But the Father is able and willing to help us. Isn't that good news? He's right there, no matter what your circumstances are. We'll pray for more spiritual growth. Pray in humble submission. Also, prayer, pray based on God's grace, not your performance. This is so important. Even as believers who believe in God's grace, we get this mixed up sometimes. That's why there in verse 16, he says that he may, what, grant you, grant you. It means to freely give you. See, we receive all of Christ's riches through God's grace. His unmerited favor. Now, we must confess and forsake all known sins. The Bible says if we want the Father to hear our prayers, Psalm 66, 18. We don't approach his throne, though, on the basis of being worthy to deserve his blessing. And sometimes that's a dicey place to be in. It's hard to get those two things right. We come to him as unworthy sinners. We don't have the right to go boldly into God's throne and demand things from him. We come before the throne of God's grace boldly, but we don't have any business coming into the presence of God demanding from him like he's a divine Santa Claus. We come through the merits of our high priest who invites us in Hebrews 4.16 to receive mercy and find grace in time of need or time of trouble. John Newton says this, This is faith, a renouncing of everything we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. Isn't that good? This is faith, a renouncing of everything we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. Please remember, when we pray, we We pray based on God's grace, not our performance. And the reason that's so important is because when our performance isn't too good, guess what goes out the window first? Our prayer life. Why? Well, we don't feel worthy. Who am I to go before God? I mean, I'm stuck in this sin. I can't keep on throwing this sin over. I just can't even 
can't even find the, the heart to go and confess the sin anymore. Because we think it's all about us. We think somehow God's up there with a big scorecard grading us. And if we don't go to church and if we don't take communion, if we don't get baptized and we don't do this and we don't do that and we don't pray before the meal, then somehow God is going to judge us as a result. See, as believers, that is just a bold-faced lie from the enemy to paralyze your spiritual growth. But see, when you know and you understand who you are in Christ, when you realize that Christ paid for all of your sins, past, present, future, and that you are a child of the Most High God, not based on your performance, but based upon his grace, it changes everything. I mean, I grew up in a church where, you know, they used shame really good. They shamed you into all kinds of stuff. They used guilt as a weapon in your life. And when I came to Christ, I began to realize, wow, this is not about feeling guilty. This is about feeling gracious for what God has done. Fourthly, Don't just pray for more spiritual growth. Pray in humble submission. Pray based on God's grace. But pray in faith, knowing that God's supply is limitless. See, sometimes we pray according to our own supply. We pray according to our own sense. Our own intellect. Well, Paul prays in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 3, he says that God the Father would grant you according to the riches of whose glory? His glory. I mean, what does the Bible say about God and his glory? The Bible tells us in Psalm 24, 1 and Psalm 50, 10 to 12, that he owns the world and all that's in it. Talk about a glorious being. He created it. But Paul has in mind so much more than material riches. He's talking about spiritual riches that God has freely provided to us in Christ. That's why he begins all the way back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In Christ, with what? With every spiritual blessing. Where's it at? In the heavenly places. He goes down in verse 7 of chapter 2. He says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Those riches display God's infinite glory. See, Paul does not ask God to give out of the riches of his glory. But he says, what? According to those riches. If a billionaire gave you 100 bucks, what did he do? He gave you out of his riches. That's a drop in the bucket for a billionaire. But if he gave you $10 million, then what did he do? He gives to you according to his riches. See, the supply of God's riches for us in Christ is bottomless. There's no end. So we need to remind ourselves to pray that he can fulfill our request. What should you pray for? Well, secondly here, turn the outline over, pray 
for the Father to grant that you will be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person. That's what he says there in in verse 16, that he would grant you according to his riches to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You're praying for the power of his indwelling spirit. God gives it to us. Because you know why? You know why you need that? Because your problems are beyond your strength to solve. And I know that goes against our pride. It goes against our own self-resolve. I'm going to make this thing work. God's saying, you can't make it work. Just give up. I mean, this is not speaking of some dramatic one-time experience. The language here in the original language is an ongoing experience of God's power. Ongoing change in our hearts as we walk by the Spirit of God each and every day. I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Our, our, our own Lord in John chapter 15, verse 15, or verse 5, John 15, 5, Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. That means no thing, nothing. We are totally and utterly dependent upon him. But we often forget this, don't we? The reason I know we forget it is because so many of our lives are filled with prayerlessness more than prayer. I doubt very much if I ask the question, how many of you feel your prayer life is at the absolute best it's ever been and it's, it's, it doesn't have anywhere else to go? You've hit the ceiling on prayer. You can move on to something else. Not one of us would raise, dare raise our hand. If you did, you're a fool. And a liar, yeah. <laughs> See, it's good to ask yourself often, if God withdrew his spirit from me, how long would it take me to miss him? Do you ever think about that? If God somehow just took his Holy Spirit that was deposited, now this is impossible, okay, this is just conjecture. This could never happen theologically. But I mean, sometimes we live like the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in us. But if God withdrew his Spirit from us, how long would it take for us to actually miss the Holy Spirit in our life? A day? An hour? A week? A year? Make sure you're praying for the power of his indwelling Spirit because your problems are beyond your ability and strength to solve. Secondly, you're praying for the power through his spirit in the inner man because God changes outward behavior by how? Changing the heart. By changing the heart. By changing the attitude. By changing the inner man. Modern science has made some amazing discoveries. But it hasn't discovered how to impart life to a dead animal or a dead person. Haven't figured that out yet. You can't go out in the graveyard, dig somebody up, and give them a shot, and they come back to life. It doesn't work that way. Now, yes, people have died, and medically they're able to resuscitate the heart. But things are still functioning in the body even after the heart stops. But after someone's been dead and declared dead, they can't give you a shot to bring you back to life. But that's what the new birth is all about. 
God makes those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, what does he do? He makes us alive in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4, or 2, 5. How does he do it? Through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. So pray for your inner transformation for yourself and for others, not just behavioral changes. So many times the new year comes around, people just want to change the outside. They want to change technically what people can see. And that's good for maybe two or three weeks, right? Unless you change your attitude, unless you change your inner thinking, and only God can do that, the change won't last. Many Christians mistakenly think that if a person prays to accept Jesus as Savior or, quote, invite him into their hearts, then somehow they're just magically born again. doesn't happen that way, my friends. I mean, it may happen that way. But just because someone prays a prayer or lifts a hand in a revival meeting doesn't mean they're a Christian. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We don't know. The question is, did God really change their heart? Did God really transform them? A little C doesn't appear on someone's forehead designating them as a Christian after they pray a prayer. Is it evident that that person has new life in Christ? Is it evident that their desires and their motives are different than what they used to be? Is it evident that now they love God and his word more than themselves? Is it evident that they now love and understand the church? Do they hunger? Do they thirst for righteousness? See, the battle against temptation, the battle against sin, is a battle that's won or lost in the heart of the inner person. You may be able to change your outward behavior through techniques or through methods, through counseling, 12-step program, whatever. But if God doesn't change your heart, you know what? One commentator says, it's, you're just putting a tuxedo on a pig. It's all you're doing. See, the Pharisees looked so good on the outside. Think about it. Jesus pointed this out often. But Jesus also said, you know what? They're like whitewashed tombs. Think about that phrase, whitewashed tombs. What are they? They're clean on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead man's bones in all uncleanness. See, genuine Christianity is not about joining a church. It's not about going through some religious ritual. It's not about some moral improvement program. It's about seeing hearts changed for Christ. And that has to begin with a new birth. But it's a birth that continues throughout life. For that kind of interchange, we need nothing less than the power, the daily power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Only he can make your heart the kind of place where Jesus is pleased to dwell. You can't do it on your own. Well, thirdly, we need to pray that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Ephesians three seventeen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, Paul says. Paul was writing to believers, remind you. So 
Doesn't Christ dwell in the hearts of all believers? What's Paul saying here? Well, yes, but there's a little more here that we need to talk about. He's talking about Christ being at home in our hearts. Christ dwells in your heart as you trust and you obey him. Do you understand that biblical faith is not passive? It's not passive. You know, so many times you hear people, well, you, you know, you just need to let go and let God. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is active reliance on God and his promises. Often in the face of impossible circumstances we find ourselves in. Biblical faith is always linked with obedience. You can't have biblical faith without being obedient. If we trust God, we should be obedient to God. If we are obedient to God, we will trust that his word is true. I mean, Jesus spoke of that link between our obedience and his being at home in our hearts in John 14, 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will what? He will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus understood that faith and obedience are linked together. Christ is not at home in the life of a disobedient Christian who keeps a dirty house. He's not at home. Secondly here, Christ dwelling in your heart means that he progressively takes over every area of your life. (laughs) I pray that your life is a little different than when you first came to Christ. That you're experiencing Christ in a little different way. I mean, I'm sure in this room we've had people that have been Christians well over 50 years. Some of you may be Christians for months. I don't know. But I pray that from the first day you came to Christ until now, something's changed. And something continues to change. You never top out. The Christian life, the Christian ministry is always frustrating to me because I like to complete things. I like to see things done. Whether it's a project or whether it's study, whatever. And it just bugs me to no end that you're never done in ministry. You're never done with your Christian life. You can never top out. You never finally hear that final sermon and say, okay, I don't need to hear any more sermons. I I listened to everything there has ever been that can ever help me grow spiritually, and I will not grow anymore by doing anything more spiritual in my life, so I can just set this all aside now because I'm good to go. never happens that way. See, Christ takes over our life progressively. It's a lifelong process where we welcome Christ into every aspect of our life. So that there's no area, no area in our heart, no area in our life that would be uncomfortable for Christ to dwell there. I know many of you have seen the little book, My Heart, Christ's Home. Robert Munger wrote it by University Press. He tells how after Christ entered his heart in the joy of that newfound relationship, he said, Lord... I want this heart of mine to be yours. I I want to have you settle down there and, and be perfectly at home. Everything I have belongs to you, Lord. And he went on through this little book. He says, let me show you around and introduce you to the various features of, of this new home so that you may be more comfortable and that we may have fuller fellowship together. And in this little book, he describes how he proceeded to take Christ into the study, which represented what his mind is focused on. 
The Lord had some cleaning up to do there. <laughs> and then they went on and they moved on to the living room where they agreed to meet each morning to start the day together. And that went well until Munger got busy and started skipping those times. He had viewed those quiet times only as a means for his own spiritual progress rather than a time to fellowship with the Lord. It's kind of like meeting with somebody just so you can get something from them. Well, they moved on through all the rooms of the house, remodeling, cleaning, wherever was necessary, him and the Lord. And the final room was a closet in the hallway. And Munger had kept it locked up, he said. No one goes in the closet. Not even you, Lord. It was where he kept those secrets that he had tried to keep hidden from the Lord. Well, through their dialogue, he finally had to give the Lord the key so that he could clean out that closet. See, that's how Christ, that's how God works in our hearts, beloved. It doesn't happen all at once. He wants to move from room to room until every area of our lives is suitable for his dwelling place. And he does this as we trust and obey him. The fourth thing here is we need to pray that we will be rooted and grounded in love. That's what he says in verse 17. Paul mixes his metaphors here using one from botany, rooted, and another one from architecture, grounded. Speaking of a foundation to strengthen his point. We should keep the connection with the earlier part of the prayer in mind, the result of being strengthened with power through God's spirit in the inner man is that Christ will come to be at home in our hearts through faith, resulting in our being rooted and grounded in love, Paul says. See, Paul does not specify whether this is God's love for us or our love for him or our love for others. So at this point, he's talking about Love as man, the main principle in the Christian life. God's great love for us is demonstrated in sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for our sins. That, that is really undergirding everything here. And stemming from that, all of his commandments that are summed up by the two great commandments, Jesus said, to what? To love God and to what? Love others as you love yourself. So the Christian life is rooted and grounded in Love is Paul's point. Pray that you, pray that others would sink down the roots into God's love as seen even on the cross as Christ hung there. Pray that his great love in sending his son to die for your sins would be the foundation of everything in your life, both Godward and toward others. Rooted and grounded in love. Fifthly, pray that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints the unfathomable extent of of the love of which Christ, of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. I know that's a mouthful, but I didn't know how else to put it. Because that's how Paul puts it in verses 18 and 19 there. They may be able that we will have the strength to comprehend means to lay hold of or seize, to grab a hold of. See, every true child of God knows the love of Christ to some extent. You have to. Romans 3.16, for God so loved the world. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But see, this verse states that you can never know it fully because it's beyond what? It's beyond human comprehension. Paul wants 
you to make the immeasurable love of Christ yours at the deepest level you can. While this knowledge is based on information, it's more than mere information. In Romans chapter 8, he explains it, Paul does, in verses 35 to 39. Just listen, you don't even have to turn there. Romans 8, I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, Paul writes, through him who loved us. And then he says this in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good time for an amen. Amen. All right. See, this isn't something that you achieve in a year in your life. This isn't even something you achieve in your lifetime. But daily we can grow. We can know it better. Note, however, that you will not come to know the unknowable love of Christ by yourself. Won't do it. There is a corporate emphasis in this prayer. In verse 15, chapter 3, notice what he says, from whom every family, some translations say the whole family. Some believe that refers to the church. In Ephesians, Paul is talking about the church at Ephesus. He's talking about it being built together in a dwelling place of God. In verse 18, he prays that we may be able to comprehend the magnitude of God's love with all the saints. And then in the end, in verse 21, he prays that there will be glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. I know I have personally experienced Christ's love in many ways in my own life. But you have experienced his love in other ways in your life. And that experience is multiplied through the entire church, both locally here and worldwide. So when you get together with other believers and ask them to tell them their story of how they came to know Christ, how he has shown his love in their lives, how you share your story and how you have experienced Christ's love, that's called the church. But we could pool all those stories of all the believers worldwide and we still wouldn't fully know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love. It's a surpassing knowledge. Well, quickly, sixthly, we need to pray that it will be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is the the summit of the, the Mount Everest prayer of Paul here in verse 19, that you may be filled up to the all the fullness of God. I mean, it's comparable to what he says over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, 28, where he says we need to present every man complete in Christ. It refers to the perfection of which God himself is full. It's a prayer that God will totally fill, control every aspect of your life, 
your heart, your mind, your attitudes, your goals, your motives, your emotions, your relationships, your finances. Every decision you make is comparable to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What's it mean? Paul's saying, you know what? We need to be all that God wants us to be, to be spiritually mature. As with this entire prayer, it's a process. It's not something that's going to be completed on this side of glory. But it's God's Goal and God's desire that every believer be conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should join Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, you know what? Join me in this. Join in pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Last point here. Pray for God to do far more abundantly beyond that you can Ask or think for his glory. What's he saying? He's saying pray big prayers. Pray big prayers. Ask God to do something which is humanly inexplicable. Don't be guilty of praying small, safe prayers. I have a plaque hanging in my office. It says, expect something from God so impossible that unless God is in it, it's doomed to failure. It's a Hail Mary pass kind of prayer. You're going all in for broke, asking God for things that are way beyond our human ability to understand. But no prayer is too big or too difficult for God. Philip Brooks said it best. He said, pray the largest prayers You cannot think a prayer so large that God, in answering it, will not wish you had made it larger. Pray not for crutches, but for wings. One caution here, sometimes for reasons we cannot understand, God does not answer our prayers the way we hoped. Paul prayed fervently for the conversion of the Jews, but that prayer wasn't completely answered. I prayed for the conversion of many family members. Some may have died without Christ. I prayed for broken marriages amongst couples and in divorce. Prayed for sinning Christians to repent, but you know what? They persisted in their sin and had to be excommunicated from the church. So there's a mystery here about prayer. We can't always understand God's ways. But even so, we need to pray. Secondly, pray for God to be glorified by converting sinners and sanctifying saints. Converting sinners and sanctifying saints. See, God's glory is the goal of redemption. Pray that God will convert sinners for his glory. I pray that that's a daily prayer in your life. That somehow, maybe through the radio, maybe through our missionaries, through the members of this church, somehow people will hear, they'll see the gospel of Christ lived out and spoken in their midst and be drawn to Christ as a result. I pray that 2020, we will see many hearts and lives 
transformed by God's grace, that they will come to Christ. But we know that it requires nothing less than God's resurrection power. He must grant faith. He must grant repentance. But think about it. If he can save Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, who executed Christians for sport when he was dead in his trespasses and sin, he can save and sanctify most difficult people you know. So pray that he will do far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think for his glory. So to get out of the spiritual doldrums, pray this prayer. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your family members. Pray it for your church. Pray for the Father to grant that you'll be strengthened with power through the inner person, through the Holy Spirit. Pray that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith that you'll be rooted and grounded in love, that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints the immeasurable extent of the love of Christ, and that you'll be filled up to the fullest of God. Pray for God to do far more abundantly beyond all you can ask or think for his glory. See, wherever you're at with the Lord, there's always more. Get out of that ditch, that spiritual ditch you're in, the spiritual doldrum, the spiritual slump, Pray Paul's prayer for yourself and others this year. Pray for a year of unprecedented growth in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's prayer and the hope that it gives us as believers and even as unbelievers. If there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you even now, Lord, save me from my sin. Lord, this isn't something we can do on our own. It requires the very act of God to intercede in our lives, to show us our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, bring us to that low point in our lives where we can only look up to you for your grace. And when we're there, I pray that we would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer when prayed with faith from a sincere heart. God will answer and he will transform you just like he did the Apostle Paul. And then you'll understand the purpose and the plan that God has for you here on earth. And you'll have a desire to live fully for him each and every day. And for us believers, I pray that if we're in that spiritual ditch, if we're in that slump, Lord, I pray that this would rattle our cage, that we'd be able to start even today with a new attitude and a new outlook on life. Lord, that you'll shake us from our spiritual deadness, our spiritual sleepiness, And help us to wake up and put things in order in our own lives, in the lives of our family. Help us to have the proper priority spiritually in place as we embrace this new year. And we ask that you would do all this for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.